Okay. Once again, I, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, it's early-ish on a Saturday morning, and I'm glad you guys are here. And I want you guys to remember that um, the benefit that it is for the whole body for you guys to be here. Um, what happens is not just limited to these four walls when we're here. When we get here in the morning and we, we fellowship together, and we learn about one another, and we talk together, we learn together, and we share the word together, um, we take the fruit of that out of this place, back into our homes, and the fruit of that comes back into this church tomorrow. And so this church is a more vibrant, stronger church uh, because we were here this morning. So I'm really thankful for you guys for being here. Um, once again, it's a full room, and I'm, I'm really, really thankful. So um, thanks for coming. Thanks for believing in God's design for how the body is built up. And I'm thankful that you're here. What we're going to do this morning is I'm going to start with prayer, and then we are going to spend a little bit of time talking about how to care for our hearts. So, let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, I thank you again for another day, Lord. The sun rising in the morning and heating this place uh, reminds us that you are the creator God and we are small and uh, you are the one who designs and controls everything. We're the ones that you have created and we are living in your world. And oh Lord, I thank you for these men who are here this morning. Lord, I thank you for the evidence that you save. Lord, the evidence is that there is a transformed life and a desire to participate in the body into which they've been saved. And I thank you that that is on display here this morning. And Lord, I praise you for each and every man that you have saved, that you are working in. Lord, that is a testimony only to your kindness and goodness. I pray for us today. Lord, I pray for us from the first minute we're here until the last minute we're here that you would attend to us and you would give us words that are from you. You would give us understanding that is from you. You would give us the ability to speak to one another uh, in a way that is uplifting and builds up this body. So, Lord, we are, we are human vessels. We are weak vessels. Uh, but, Lord God, your spirit within a man makes him capable, makes him able to do the things that you have for him to do. And I pray that you do that today. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Psalm 19? What we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes here to talk about one of the ways in which you will prepare your heart for meeting with the Lord in the morning uh, or in the afternoon or in the evening or whenever it is that um, you meet with the Lord. So you sit down, you've got your Bible and you're thinking, I need to do this. This is really good. It's a good thing for guys to be reading their Bibles. It's a good thing for men. It's a good thing for husbands, fathers to be reading their Bibles. This is what I need to do. And you realize to yourself, you know, my heart is not yet uh, stoked up for the Lord. I am not um, engaged in this. I'm here. My eyes are open and I'm breathing. But um, my affections aren't really flowing yet. So what I want to do is read a passage that will help us um, prepare our hearts for meeting alone with the Lord. Um, I do this often. I, I find myself sitting down reading my Bible and I, my heart is just not ready to go yet. It's early and vertical, but um, this is really helpful to help me remember why I'm there and what I'm doing. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 19, and then we're going to go from there. The psalmist writes, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So what I have in front of me is God's testimony to me that he is able to um, create the world. He did create the world, and he put his own glory on display in creation. 
the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. All you have to do is look up. All you have to do is take your eyes off of yourself and look up and you will see the glory of God because God is telling of his own glory in the heavens, in his creation. And he does so during the daytime and he does so at nighttime. In the daytime, we have the ability to see that we, we, we have the ability to see God's size and his impressiveness. We learned last time that God's glory relates to his weightiness and his impressiveness and his splendor and his majesty. All you have to do is, is look out and, and notice that there is no end to what you can see, no end to the, the distance that you can see. And you can see that that speaks of God's glory. Um, it declares the work of his hands. Every single thing that, that we see, that we can't even see, is, is created by his hands. And at night, when you, if you live in a place where there's no light pollution, or if you actually are in a place where there's no, no, no light pollution at night, you see the, the number of stars that, that God created. And you contemplate how many they are, there are. And you contemplate their size and their, their position and their orientation. And that is just the, the smallest fraction of, of what we can see is the smallest fraction of what God created. And so it is really good to just stop and remember the magnitude, the size, the dimension, the temperature, um, the positioning of all that God has created, and that those things put his glory on display. Just to ponder that the size is beyond our ability to comprehend. Um, the temperature, the color, the positioning, is just beyond our ability to comprehend. And all of that is telling us that God is a God of glory. It's declaring it to us. Um, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to drop down to verse 7. We're going to read verses 7 through 11. And... This is where I, I, I take God's glory and I move into why I'm actually reading my Bible. Starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, and much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. God is starting himself and explaining himself in the beginning of the psalm by saying, I, I have a glory that is beyond your ability to comprehend. Now, I am giving you a law. I'm giving you a law that is perfect. And the perfection has benefits, and that is that it restores your soul. I need to tell myself the reason why I'm here in the morning is because my soul needs to be restored. When I read God's word, my soul is restored. When I don't read God's word, my soul is not restored. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It, it makes the, the simple man a wise man. I know from my own life how simple I am. I, I know how frail I am, how feeble I am, and how incapable I am. And uh, God's word and the principles in his word make me a wise man. That's why I need to be reading this word. So I'm telling myself, okay, this is why I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here because I don't have the wisdom on my, my own. My heart is dry. My heart is, is not full of affections. Well, verse 8 helps me understand that God's precepts are right. And my heart rejoices over the rightness of those precepts. When I actually meditate on the rightness of those precepts, there is joy that comes to my heart. That's why I'm here this morning. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens my eyes. I have a, a very small ability to see things for the way they really are, see things as they really are. But when I meditate on the purity of God's commandments, if there's nothing adulterating God's commandments, um, 
and I, I embrace those myself, that gives me the ability to see the world the way it really is. Oh, and after that, uh, when I, I spend time alone with the Lord, I gain a reverence for the Lord, a fear of the Lord. That's why I'm here this morning. Because apart from taking God's word into my mind and into my heart, uh, I am just not going to fear God the way that I need to. I'm not going to have a reverence for him unless I'm reading his explanation of himself to me. So I see that and, I, and then I realize, oh, that God's judgments are true. They're righteous altogether. That the, when the Lord determines what is right and what is wrong, there is truth to that. There is rightness in that. So when I'm reading his word and I'm reading what he says is right, it is right. And I need to remind myself of that because I don't have the ability to discern what is right on my own. And then I, I read down and I see, oh, that this is actually the most desirable thing that I can be doing right now. There is, there is nothing that is, is better for me. There is nothing that's more profitable me, for me than actually taking God's instructions and, and putting them in my mind and, and allowing that to sink down into my heart. So um, what I want to do is just help you understand that um, that is why, um, that is one way that I use to prepare my heart for reading my Bible. Because I've, I've spent many years reading my Bible, and at the end of my time in the Word, I realized I don't really even think I engaged with God in this. I might have read several pages, I might have read a passage, I might have read, read it more than once, um, but I haven't really engaged with God. Psalm 19, when I walk through this, just uh, takes me 30, 40 seconds to do it, maybe a minute to do this and meditate on this. This helps prepare my heart for a meaningful time with the Lord. It helps prepare my heart for engaging with his word and, and remembering why I'm before his word. So the thought there is that um, perhaps that's helpful to you. If that's helpful to you, uh, praise God. Um, if not, if you have something else that works real well for you, um, that is wonderful. Share that with the other guys in your discussion group throughout the year. And uh, the goal here is to help us have times alone with the Lord that are, that are uh, more beneficial to us so that we can be a greater benefit to our household and then to this church and beyond that. So uh, praise God. So uh, that is what we have for our disciplines this morning. What we'll do now is we will break off into our discussion groups, and we'll be back here at about 5 till 8, and we'll teach until 9. Thanks. All right. Um, whenever we handle God's Word, um, I know my own weakness. I, I feel my own smallness. I feel my own inabilities. So let's go to the Lord and ask Him to help us uh, comprehend His Word and understand uh, in the way that He intends us to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for these men. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and to gather around your word. Thank you for the teaching of your word, Lord, that you are a God who actually communicates about yourself. Lord, uh, you could have created this world and not revealed yourself and not communicated, but you chose to communicate to us in written form. And today we have that communication in our own language. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the gift and the treasure that your word is. I pray that your word would guide us and help us today as we spend time together. Lord, I pray that the things that men take away from, from this time together would be your truth. It would be your word. It would be principles from your word that, that can help us. So, Lord, we pray that as we discuss the way that you save people, that you would receive the glory, that, that all of the focus and the attention would be drawn upon you. And, Lord God, that this place would be a stronger church because of it. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Okay, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to Romans chapter 8? Romans 8. So what we're going to do is we're going to have um, our pamphlet here. We want to have that close at hand because we're going to be looking at the left side of this and the center section of this. 
And you also want your notes, and somewhere you're going to find your Bible. So, um, we were talking about this in our discussion group. The most substantial transformation that takes place in the universe is the transformation that takes place when God saves a sinner. And it is a transformation unlike anything else, because what you see is before, what you see after is something that's nothing like what you saw before. Um, It's a transformation that, that completely changes the person and makes them into a new creation. And there is much to see and much to observe in that. It's, it's, the change is irrefutable. It's, it's obvious to see. It's clear. It's more and more clear as time goes on. And God is very, very clear in his word about how he does that. He wants us to understand exactly what he does to save the sinner. What we have in front of us is um, something that we've been using for the last three or four years here at Grace Bible Church. And this is something we teach every year because this is what we, um, we understand to be God's revelation about how he changes a man what we're going to see here is that there are the way you read this is you read this pamphlet left to right just like you read your bible left to right you see that there's three different kinds of of men that we're going to be talking about and you see that at the very top of your your pamphlet on the left side in the, the left side you have the unregenerate man in the center section you have the regenerate man and in the right section you have the heavenly man those are the only kind, three kinds of people that there are in the universe. There's the unregenerate man, the regenerate man, and the heavenly man. And what we have here is uh, the condition that that man is in, three different conditions. What you have here is an event that transfers a man from one condition to the next. And what transfers the man from unregenerate man to regenerate man is regeneration. And you see that at the top of the left section. And then when you see the the transition from the regenerate man to the heavenly man, you see another event that that translations the man from the one condition to the next, and that is death. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the first two sections of this this week, and we'll go through the the third section next time, the transition to the third section and the third section next time. Um, A Christian only comes to understand who he is in Christ and how he came to be where he is, when he has a proper understanding of the kind of person he was in his natural born condition. You truly only understand how salvation came about to be when you understand the condition into which you were born in this world. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to go to Romans chapter 8 and take a look at the unregenerate man. And the, the single statement, that can, the phrase that can summarize the unregenerate man is without Christ. He is without Christ and he is in an unmixed sinful condition homogeneous sinful condition that's who a person is without Christ and he is unrighteous you'll see that there and what we're going to do here is we're going to look at Romans chapter 8 verses 5 through 8 and we're going to see how we we got to this I'm going to read those four verses and we'll make some observations on those and then we'll we'll look at the references here that we have in the the left section and then we'll, we'll walk our way through the key descriptions So reading Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
So what you see here in this passage is a contrast. There's the contrast between the unregenerate man and the regenerate man. At the beginning of verse 5, we see those who are according to the flesh. This is speaking of the former condition of man, the first condition of man. And the flesh here is, is not really the tissue that covers your flesh and your bones and your skeleton. The flesh here is that which is sinfully weak and falters before God. When scripture talks about flesh, it talks about that which is sinfully weak and falters before God. And it loves to be in that condition. It actually loves that. It's not able to recognize that it's sinfully weak and faltering before God, but it loves the condition that it's in. And so to live according to that is to live by the standard of your own natural condition, to live by the standard of that which is sinfully weak and faltering before God. Verse 5 also tells us that that person sets their mind on the things of the flesh. Your mind is who you are before God as a thinker, as a ponderer, as a meditator. What that person does is they take their, think their thinking self and they set that according to the sinfully weak and faltering condition that they're in before God. So the sinfully weak, faltering condition before that they are in before God they set their mind to that standard. That's what the unregenerate man does. And notice that there's no conflict between their mind and their flesh. Absolutely no conflict. Everything is in perfect agreement. The mind isn't telling the flesh to do one thing, and the flesh isn't telling the mind to do another thing. Um, there is perfect agreement in the unregenerate man between his mind and his flesh, and that he's sinfully weak and faltering before God. It's really important that we get that. That, that, that is the condition to which a person is born. Verse 6 tells us that the mindset on the flesh is death. And we're talking about a, a spiritually dead condition before God, where all your thoughts only lead you to enmity before God. Spiritually dead, not spiritually alive. Ephesians 2.1 says, we were dead in the trespasses and sins. It means unable to move, unable to change, unable to, to change the way you are. Not only is the mindset on flesh death, but the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God in verse 7. For it doesn't subject itself to the law of God. So not only is he hostile towards God, but he doesn't have any intention of subjecting himself to God's law. And at the end of verse 7, we see the reason why that is so, because he's not even able to do so. In that condition, in man's natural born condition, he has no ability to subject himself to the law of God. Authority over the man is, is something that the man does not want to subject himself to. So if you're a father of little children and you see little children disobeying you, the only authority they know in their life, that's because that's the condition they were born into. That's the evidence that man is unable to subject himself to the authority that God has placed over his life. And lastly, in verse 8, we read that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Remember who Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a person who's in the flesh. He's unable to please God in all of these things because he's opposed to God. He's unwilling to submit to God. He's dead in his condition. That's the kind of person that he is. He's, he's not able to please God. He's unwilling to please God. has no desire to please God. So when you take a person like this, you have to stop and realize that changing their environment won't actually change who they are at a heart level. Changing their environment won't make them able to please God. A new set of rules that they live by won't make them able to please God. Neither will a new job or a new set of friends or a different spouse. 
you know, a new church or anything else. None of those things will make a person able to please God. Um, and the reason why is because none of those things address the true heart condition that's evident in the person from birth. They're powerless as long as one stays in that condition. So what we're going to do here is we're going to look at some of the references that we have in our left section here, the unregenerate man section. I'm going to read some scripture. And again, this section and this lesson and the next lesson is going to have probably more scripture than most lessons we teach. And that's because we want God to inform us on how he saves the sinner. So reading more about the, the natural born condition of the unregenerate man, Ephesians 2.3. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and this is the church that he pastored for three years. He has a, a good relationship with these people. He is talking at depth with these people because he taught them at depth for three years. And he says in verse 3 of Ephesians 2, Among them, the lost in the world, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Here's the part I want to focus on indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and they were by nature children of wrath. So notice here that the flesh and the mind have common desires. Paul is speaking over them as the same thing. We're indulging the desires of the flesh, indulging the desires of the mind. They're in agreement with one another, and we indulge them. That's what the, the natural man does. Whatever his mind intends to do, that's what he does. Whatever his flesh wants to do, that's what he does. Colossians 1, verse 13 Paul is writing to the church in Colossae a church that he never actually met personally but he writes and he says God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his light the kingdom of his beloved son the domain of darkness is to be under the power of a created being who is superior to man so man in his natural born condition is in the domain of darkness he's under the power of another one who is another created being the devil who has more power than he himself does. So that's his condition. Paul writes to Titus, and he's giving Titus instructions on how to establish the church in Crete. And he says, this is the description of a man who's in the unregenerate condition. He's talking about himself in his former condition. He said, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, Notice the disposition there of that person. That person has no desire to please God. None whatsoever. That's their disposition. That's their natural born condition. In Colossians 1 verse 21, he says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, and then he goes to talk about a transformation of life. But he's talking about a person here who's alienated from God. So that's the person's position before God. He's alienated from him. And he talks about the person's orientation towards God. He's hostile in his mind towards God. And he talks about the activity of that person. He's engaged in evil deeds. So the person in their natural born condition has a position that's opposed to God. He has an orientation that's opposed to God. And he has an activity that's opposed to God. So all of those things Paul uses to describe the person in the natural born condition. And I'll mention a couple of more verses here. I want to show you Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 19. This is really helpful because this helps us understand the weakness of the thought process that's involved in the person who's in the natural born condition. Paul is encouraging the church. The first three chapters of Ephesians is Paul's explanation of how God saves the sinner. The last three chapters in Ephesians is how the believer should walk in response to what God does to save. And so in verses 17 through 19 of chapter 4, Paul says, This I say and affirm together, 
with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles or the unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind. So their mind is futile. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. End of verse 18, they have a hardness of their heart. And then you look at the result of that in verse 19 is that since they've been given over to sensuality. So there's a futility of mind in the man who's in his unregenerate condition. He has a darkened understanding. There's no light to his understanding. He can't see because there's, there's darkness. He has a hardness of heart. He's not soft to anything that God is doing and anything that God is, is at work in. And as a whole, he's given over to sensuality. He's not given over to things that please God and that are honoring to God. He's given over to the things that are offensive to God. But notice that that's who he is. There's no function. There's no friction. There's no disagreement with his parts. All of him is oriented, oriented opposite and opposed to God. What I'm going to show now is in Romans chapter 5, the, the person who, that's his disposition towards God. Now what we're going to see in verse in chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, is, is how the man actually can't help himself in that condition. He's stuck in that position. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he's, he's helped them understand that in chapters 1 through 4, God's designed to save a sinner. And he explains in chapter 3 that every man is sinful. Chapter 4, he explains that salvation has always been by faith, and he gives Abraham as an example. And he begins to talk about justification in chapter 5. In the midst of his conversation about justification, he talks about the helplessness of the unbeliever. In verse 6, he says, While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So the person in his natural unregenerate condition is helpless, and he's ungodly. There is nothing that he can do to help himself. He's helpless. He has no help within himself that he can bring to himself. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So not only is he helpless, but he's a helpless sinner who's offending God at an alarming rate. At the end of, verse, at the end of this passage in verse 10, we read that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And having been reconciled, we can be saved by his life. So you're looking at a person who's an enemy of God. He's not just floating around in space indifferent to God. He's actually an enemy of God. He's an opposed to God. So that's the natural-born condition of the unregenerate man. That's the natural-born condition of every unregenerate man, every person who's born. That's the condition I was born into and every other person. David. So um, just looking at these three categories, unregenerate, regenerate, so you got people in the Old Testament like Abel, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David. Were they unregenerate then? There were Old Testament saints. If you read uh, Hebrews chapter 11, you'll read that the saints in the Old Testament had saving faith. Hebrews 11 talks about faith. And what they looked forward to was a Messiah. They looked forward to a Messiah. They didn't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in them, but they had faith that God was going to provide a Messiah. They were looking forward to a Messiah in the same way that the, the believer today looks back at the Messiah. Um, that's where the whole idea of Lord, come quickly, Maranatha came to be, was Lord, come quickly and help us and save us. Um, there was the Old Testament saint who looked forward to the Messiah, the promise of a Savior. And the one who believed God and God's design understood God's communication that man was sinful um, and needed a Savior and looked forward to that Savior. That man was considered righteous because he believed God. Abraham believed God that he needed a Savior, and God credited that to him 
of righteousness. Um, the majority of people that you read about in the Old Testament, uh, especially Israel, the majority of Israel understood their sin, but unbelieving Israel didn't look forward to a Messiah. Um, and that's what offended God so badly with them. They, they weren't looking forward to a Messiah. They weren't living as if they needed a Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed with all of that, but that doesn't answer the question about were they regenerate or not. Oh, were they regenerate? Uh, they were nothing like the people. That, they hadn't been regenerated with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. Isn't that what this is talking about, is regenerated by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, the Holy Spirit that is given. And so the, the believer in, in the New Testament has, has received the Holy Spirit. They didn't possess the Holy Spirit within them. They they did have saving faith. They were not it's fair to say they were not regenerate. They were the same person who possessed saving faith. So all the characteristics of the unregenerate man apply to those people I just mentioned. Well, they when you look at them, when you read what about they have saving faith in Hebrews chapter eleven it would be not possible for them to have the saving faith that they had and do the things that they did, if you read Hebrews 11, and be in opposition to God. Um, um, Fair to say that there was not um, an indwelling, permanent presence of the Holy Spirit in them that would change them and and make them... um, that would reside within them throughout their life the way it is true in the present time, the present day, after Acts chapter 2. So there's like another category then. There's the Old Testament believer who, who believes that God has given saving faith and whose life is, is different because of the saving faith that God has given them. So there's like another category then. It's an unrefutable category. Yeah, well, let, let's have a conversation about that. Let's do. I want to. Um, if I, if I could, um, because you're referring to the, the different covenants, um, the Old Testament is God's chosen people. So to, to say that they were hostile towards God in, in their natural state, um, maybe may be a conversation for later, because Paul is talking to uh, Gentiles. So we, we are not the chosen people. So in our natural state, we were not a part of those original covenants and promises. So that's why the covenant later on gives us the Holy Spirit, because God's chosen people in the Old Testament had that direct connection with with God himself. Um, So in in Ephesians, it also talks about how Jesus um, closes the gap between Israel and the Gentiles. So that's why we, we have that natural hostility towards God because Christ had to close that gap between the chosen city of Israel and his people to us. I don't know if that helps, um, but it's two different two different things that you're talking about. Sounds like another category to me, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, hey, excuse me. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't see that as another category, but the Old Testament saints were looking forward to a Savior. Mm-hmm. And is it not Yeah, I think what what's important is is there was a time in the in, if you look at an Old Testament saint, there was a time in their life before which they did not look forward to a Messiah. 
They did not acknowledge their need for a Messiah. And there was a time in their life after which they did acknowledge a need for the Messiah. That was a work of God in their life, to actually give them the faith that they needed to believe that they needed a Messiah. They didn't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in them, but God did a work in their life to make them able to recognize that they needed a Messiah and that he was coming, even though they, they didn't have the testimony that we have of being able to look backwards. So that's the distinction between the Old Testament man who was not a believer and the Old Testament man who came to become a saint was that God gave him the ability to believe he needed a Messiah. And that's the distinction between the person. Um, he wasn't regenerated in the sense that the Holy Spirit made him new and gave him you know, new life the way that, that we have today in terms of the, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But there was a time at which he did not look forward to the Messiah and after some point in their life that they didn't look forward to the Messiah. Sorry, I spilled that like another category for me, so I'll just stay quiet. I appreciate the distinction. I, I do appreciate it. Thank you. And maybe there's things we can do to clarify that. But I do want to have another conversation. Thank you. Okay. All right, so here we are. Um, So there's some, some key descriptions about this person who's in the unmixed condition. Um, they're in death. There's no spiritual life. They're in hostility towards God. They're re in rebellion against God. And there's no disagreement between the flesh and the mind. And here's the, the key, is that they're unable not to sin. Uh, their life is, is, consists of running after sin. And they're unable to please God. And there's no internal fight against sin. They're dominated by and they're enslaved to sin. And sin rules over all their faculties. Sometimes it's very observable and sometimes it's not observable at all. And that's what the New Testament calls the old man. And notice that there's no description of a transition between um, the transition into the unregenerate state from the regenerate state. When you look at this and you look at scripture, you don't find scripture describing a person becoming unregenerate. That's because that's the condition they were born into. Um, that's the condition they were born into. The only change that comes about is if God actually changes them and makes them new and makes them a regenerated person. So that's what the man is without Christ. And so you look at how helpless the man is. You look at how opposed he is to God. You look at the, the judgment he's sitting under. Um, that's, a, that's a terrible place to be in. That's a place that, that he can't change himself. He needs a solution that's, that's bigger than anything that he can do. And um, the only one who can accomplish that is God. Man can't accomplish that by himself. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the regeneration event itself. So that's the, the brown portion here that sits between the left section and the center section. And this is the regeneration event itself. And the key term there is that God declares someone to be righteous. But before we talk about that, we're going to talk about... Um, what we consider to be a, a good summation or summary of the gospel here at Grace Bible Church. And we have two phrases that we're, we're comfortable with and that we use. And the first is adoption through propitiation, and the second is penal substitutionary atonement. Those are short summaries of the gospel. Adoption through propitiation. Adoption is the process by which a child is made to be a part of a family in which they don't naturally belong. And propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath, 1 John 2.2. So God brings the sinner into his family because Jesus satisfied the Father's wrath against that person. 
So there's the idea of becoming a part of a family because of Jesus' work on the cross. Satisfaction of the Father's wrath. The other summary of the gospel is penal substitutionary atonement. The word penalty is there because man in his sin deserves a penalty for offending a holy God. But the gospel is all about a substitute serving in the place of one who deserves to receive God's judgment against them. And atonement it talks about being brought into unity, being reconciled to God. So there's the idea that there's a penalty for sin and that there's a substitute who suffers in place of the one who deserves that penalty and that the result of that suffering is <coughs> reconciliation to God. So penal substitutory, substitutionary atonement. And so all of this is appropriated through repentance and faith. I'm going to read Acts chapter 20, verse 21, and we'll see what Paul describes about this. He says, Paul is describing how he brought the gospel to the church, and he says to the church in Ephesus, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly from house to house, and solemnly testifying to both Jew and Greek of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we're going to talk about here is the regeneration event and the components that go into that. These are one-time, once-for-all components that are accomplished by God um, for the believer at conversion. These happen at one time. These are all things that are done by God. This isn't something that the believer does for the unbeliever does for himself. This is what God does to save the sinner. And the first is that he gives new birth. New life, he's a new creation. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So God gives new birth or gives new life. You dare that God made us alive. Then there's a positional sanctification in which the person is set apart unto God. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's a positional sanctification where a person is put into a right relationship with God. It's not a reference to ongoing sanctification that the person is becoming more and more Christ-like in their character. It's a reference to the fact that the sinner is brought into a, a right relationship with God. Another event that, that God brings about in the life of a believer that's a one-time event is justification. We read about justification a lot in Romans 3 and in Romans 5. Romans 3.24 says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Being justified means to be brought into correct line with, means to be declared righteous that God does that. He justifies as a gift by his grace. That's not something that's accomplished by the unbeliever. We have imputation here. You know, what, what we do here is we're talking about how God credits the believer with his own righteousness and Jesus becomes credited with the believer's sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's an exchange that is taking place there. There's a removal of sin from the, the unbeliever and putting that on Christ as he's on the cross. And there's a transfer of Christ's righteousness onto the, the believer. Again, that's the work that God does. Here is adoption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. 
God predestined us to adoptions as sons, as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. If you know anything about adoption, it's a process by which a parent brings a child who is not naturally a part of their family into their family and makes them part of their family permanently. There's no work on the child in that process. The child doesn't appeal to the parent to become adopted. Uh, it's a benevolent act on the part of the parent to bring a child into their family permanently. And that's what God did. It says here in Ephesians 1.5 that he actually predestined that before the foundations of the world. Another result of this is that there's a unity with Christ. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 7. After God made us alive with Christ, we read that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places with him, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the believer is brought into unity with Christ because he's their Savior, he's their Master, and he's their Lord. There's the issue of expiation or the removal of sin. John the Baptist speaks and he says, um, he sees Jesus coming in John chapter 1. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is taking place there is that Jesus actually removes the sin from the believer. He actually takes the sin out of them. So that's expiation. There's propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath. 1 John 2, verse 2. Jesus is the propitiations for our sins. Jesus himself is the satisfaction. He's the, the object of God's wrath in place of the believer on a cross. So Jesus satisfies God's wrath. The believer has redemption. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. To redeem is to, to release from one's control by the payment of a price. The sinner is controlled by by sin, they're controlled by the power of sin and when Jesus redeems them, he purchases them with his own blood, that's the price he pays and the result of that is they're drawn away from the power of that, that other one and then another benefit is the reconciliation this is what God does, he reconciles a believer to himself, Romans 6.10 for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life so God draws a believer into a right relationship with himself where the relationship was formerly broken. Uh, God is the one who restores that relationship. The believer doesn't restore the relationship themselves. You notice the passive sense of the word there, of the verb, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So that's what God does. God reconciles a sinner to himself. Then God forgives that sinner in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. God is the one who forgives. A believer doesn't accomplish forgiveness by themselves. God is the one who actually does that. And then God puts to death the old man in Galatians 2.20 and in Romans 6.6. 6. Paul writes, Knowing this, our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so we would no longer be slaves to sin. So God removes the power over the believer that, that was over them in their unbelief. Those are all the, the things that God does. These are the events that God does that bring about them. At one time, when God saves a person, these things are all accomplished when salvation is applied to a person. Um, there is a day, there is a moment when God actually makes a person a new creation. And when that day comes and when God does that, these are the things that he does to make the person new in Christ. So those are things that, that take place on one particular day. I came to Christ in July. I don't know the exact date, but it was in July of 1981. And uh, all of those things became true for me in July of 1981. 
They've been true since then, but they, they were not true before that. They became true on that day. So those are things that were done. Those are components. And what we're going to look at now is the benefits that a believer um, experiences because of their place in Christ. The first is that they're loved by God. Colossians 3.12. This is a great phrase, that God actually loves his own. We have a, a creator who actually loves his creation. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved. They're not beloved by Paul. They're beloved by God. And then he gives them instructions. Whereas the person was not loved by God in a particular close sense before, they're loved by God now. They're also indwelt by his Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit was not there prior. The Holy Spirit is there afterwards. Now they're indwelt by the Spirit permanently. And they're also indwelt by Christ. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer who I who live but Christ who lives within me. The Christian is now one with Christ. That means that Christ is in him. That was not the case before, but that's the benefit, that he actually has Christ. And when you think about being a, what it means to be a believer, if you're talking to anybody who is not a believer, one thing you can tell them is that what I have now that I never had before was Christ. I have a relationship with Christ. And Colossians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm actually a member of his body. I have membership in his body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Prior to regeneration, the unbeliever was not a member of Christ's body. After regeneration, they are. Not only are they are a member of Christ's body, but they're also members of one another. Romans 12, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're all in the same body, members together with one another in that body. There's a unity that comes about with believers. Another benefit is they actually have access to God. God has no obligation to hear the prayer of the unbeliever, but God actually grants the believer presence with him. Hebrews 4, verse 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. The believer has the capacity, has the ability, has the confidence to draw near to God through the throne of grace. And they're under grace. The believer is actually, grace is God's unmerited favor, and they're actually under that unmerited favor. Paul writes in verses 1 and 2 of Romans 5, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. They stand in an ocean of grace, an ocean of unmerited favor from God by virtue of the fact that God has saved them. And they're saved from God's wrath. Just a few verses later, verse 9 of Romans 5. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That is the ultimate benefit of being a believer, is that you're saved from God's wrath, God's permanent, unending, unimaginable wrath. The believer is spared from that. The believer is unable to be separated from Christ. There's nothing they can do to be unseparated, to be separated from God when God draws that believer to him. Romans 8. I am convinced that nothing, death, life, angels, principality, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. So nothing can take them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this, again, was a person who used to be an enemy of God, opposed to God, running against God, unwilling to submit to God. Now there's nothing that can separate him from God. And he has peace with God. 
the first verse in Romans 5 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is a person who was at enmity with God. There was, there was no harmony with God. Now he has peace with God. And he has citizenship in heaven. Paul writes to the church in Philippi and he says, our citizenship is in heaven. So the person is taken from being in a condition where this is it for you. This is all there is for you. This is the only thing that there is. This is, this is all there is to live for. This is the only place you're going to find your joy and your pleasure. To being a citizen of heaven where everything you do is aiming towards what is to come, what is better than this, what is unimaginably better than this. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven, where the things of this world are very, very small in comparison to what's awaiting us just a few decades from now. And also, the, the, what is in the Spirit is the, the evidence, what is in the person is the evidence that the Holy Spirit's in them. Galatians chapter 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. What God does is he gives the believer the ability to demonstrate that the, the Holy Spirit is within him. He does that by demonstrating love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in a way that they could never demonstrate those things before. They may have had some capacity to do those things, but they would do those things as unbelieving people with very different objectives than doing them as a believer who seeks to please God in what they do. So those are the benefits of being a believer. Um, this is what God does. He actually saves the person. He accomplishes all those things in salvation. Then he gives them benefits of being a believer. And that's our testimony as Christians to the rest of the world is, is this is what God has done for me. He's given me peace with him. He's given me membership in his body. He's given me a church. He's given me all of these other things. That is what God does when he saves a person. He doesn't just save a person and, and remove his wrath from that person, but he does much, 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 much more. So what I hope this does is this grows our appreciation and our, our wonder and our amazement and our awe at God that he would give these things to us, um, things that we don't deserve. So that is the regeneration event itself, and that is what God does to save a person. Then we're going to look at the regenerate man himself. This person is described by being in Christ. He is in Christ, whereas before he was without Christ, now he's in Christ. And something that is true about him is that at salvation he has a declared righteousness before God in terms of a positional sanctification. But he also now has a, a progressive sanctification where he is being increasingly, increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And so what I want to do is read the Romans 8 passage again, but I want to read it with emphasis on what God does to the regenerate man. So in, in Romans 8, verses 5 and following, Paul says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. In verse 6, he says, The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. In verse 8, he says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. He says, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In verse 10, If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So this is what we see in this passage. We see the condition that the unregenerate man is, but we also see the condition that the regenerate man is. And the result of regeneration is a regenerate man. And so we go back to verse 5 and, and, looks, and look at some of the phraseology. He uses the same terminology that he does when he's describing the unregenerate man. He says, according to the Spirit. Those, those believers are people who have set their minds according to the Spirit. They've set their mind according to the standard of the Holy Spirit. 
not the standard that is weak and faltering before God, but they set their mind to the standard that is perfect, that is the standard of the Holy Spirit himself. And we have a mind that is set on the Spirit in verse 6, and you, you consider what a contrast that is to the old man. When you have a mind that's set on the things of God, that sees the world through the, the perspective and the lens of God's world and God's design, how different that is from seeing the world through your own broken, sinful, faltering perspective. And they're in the spirit rather than in the flesh. Rather than being this unmixed, unregenerate, sinful man, they're actually in the spirit. They're actually um, no longer in the flesh the way that they once were. They're no longer bound by the desires and the emotions of their flesh. Because in verse 9, the spirit of God lives with them. And now what you see is that there is a conflict. This is what is descriptive of a believer, is that there's a conflict between their flesh and the spirit that is in them. If we want to understand this more, we look at the fact that we sin every day, that the believer sins every single day. And the reason why he does is because it's evidence that he's in a mixed condition. He's in a mixed condition in that he has the presence of the Holy Spirit in him, but he also has his, his former body that's still in him. We see that every single day in us. And Paul says here in verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. This is the description of the, the man who's a believer, that he's in a mixed condition. He's in, he's in the same body that he was born with. He lives in that same body. But now he has the Holy Spirit with him. He has affections for God that God gave to him at conversion. And so there is a fight within the believer. There is a, a fight against sin. And every believer who walks through it every day knows that fight. They understand that fight. And that's the evidence that a person is a believer, is that, that there's a fight within them against sin. And that should be really, really, really encouraging to every person. Look it down at verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead who dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the Father chooses to impart spiritual life to the regenerate man to, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So the change that comes about in a person is because the Holy Spirit dwells within that person and, and gives them new life. So that is the, the condition of the person who is a believer. And so look at the key descriptions of this in the center section. This person is in a mixed condition, but they are able to not sin. Whereas formerly in the other section, they were not able to not sin. Now they're able to not sin. Whereas in the former condition, they were not able to please God. Now they are able to please God. And there's a fight against sin. And there's a fight for Christ. There's a, there's a fight to please the master, who now is your, your master and your Lord. That's the distinction. They were also enslaved to God in righteousness and obedience. Whereas formerly, they were enslaved to their own lusts and their own flesh. Now they're, they're enslaved to God. And so what's also true is that residual sin and regeneration are evident in all of their faculties. We have thoughts that are pleasing to the Lord. We have thoughts that are not pleasing to the Lord. I've had both of those today, this morning. Um, you know, I think every other man would agree. I've had words this morning that were pleasing to the Lord, and I've had words that weren't as pleasing to the Lord this morning. Um, so it's, it's important to understand that the believer is in a mixed condition. Um, next time when we get together, we'll talk about the unmixed condition. But um, this is really, really important for us to get, that the believer is in a mixed condition. So the mixed condition of the regenerate man is characterized by a new identity in Christ. 
1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God. So you have new identity in Christ. While you're in a mixed condition, you have new identity in Christ. You didn't have that identity before. You didn't have the identification before. And you have evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. If you're a believer, you do display some measure of love for God that you never displayed before. Some measure of joy in your life of being a child of God that you couldn't have had before. You have peace that's growing that you never had before. You have patience because you trust God's sovereignty over you. All of that is the evidence that his spirit is in a person. It's really good and really encouraging to sit down and and measure yourself. Look at the evidence of the spirit within you in terms of those nine characterizations in Galatians chapter 5 and compare where those are today to where they were five years ago if you've been a believer longer than five years. And look at yourself and notice the difference in the peace and notice the difference in the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness that's in you. And that is not because um, of us. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is leading us and empowering us and enabling us by God's grace to live in newness of life. So the believer then is in a new condition. They have the Holy Spirit within them, but they also are able to do things that are pleasing to God. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 for you. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God doesn't just save a man to save him from his sin. He saves him and puts his spirit in him so that he is actually capable of doing the good works that God prepared for him. Every one of us has good works that God's prepared for us, for believers, later today, whatever they are, when we drive away from here. God has good works prepared for us. We have the ability to obey God. God is who would work in us, in Philippians 2.13, to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have the ability to obey God. But we also have a proneness to sin. I know that in my own life. I've seen that today. Galatians 5.17. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. This is the the characteristic. This is the condition of the believer. The flesh will always be there until they breathe their last breath. And the, the believer who's growing and growing and growing shows that more and more and more they submit to the law of Christ in their life. And they, they don't submit to their flesh and the desires of their flesh. And there's ongoing repentance in the life of the believer in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So there's an ongoing repentance, but there's also ongoing faith. We read Galatians 2.20 earlier. Paul says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The believer actually walks believing that what Christ did on the cross actually satisfies God's wrath against them. And that God has given them the ability to walk in new life, newness of life. So there's many, many more things there. and We don't have a whole bunch of time. But we do want to, want to point out in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the believer is somebody who is progressing in Christ-likeness. They're progressing. They're growing. They're not stagnant. The believer isn't stagnant in, in what they're doing. That God is in them. Read this. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of God are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So the believer is positionally saved, but they're becoming increasingly sanctified in the way that they live their life before God. And one of the key verses and the key attributes for a believer is now that they're actually no longer a slave to sin. 
something that I, I hope every man in this room does before the end of their life is they become very, very familiar with Romans chapter 6. And they become familiar with the fact that we're no longer slaves to sin. That sin doesn't have rule over us the way that it once did. Paul says, Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died to his former self is freed from sin and sin's rule. Not sin's presence, but sin's rule. That's probably the biggest takeaway for today for the believer is that they are free from sin's power over them. And uh, when we were teaching through Romans uh, earlier this year in chapters 6 and 7, it was really, really helpful to, to be reminded of the fact that the believer is the hunter. He is the one who is searching for the evidence of sin in his life, and he is putting that to death. Whereas before, when he was not a believer, when he was absent from Christ, uh, sin was pursuing him, and he was losing to sin every time it pursued him. So the mixed condition, the regenerate man, requires that God's relentless transformation of the believer. God changes the believer. He changes them day after day after day. But it also requires the believer's diligent pursuit of holiness. I want to read 1 Peter 1, chapter 3, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8. And this is what the believer does when God changes them. It's not a passive walk. It's a very active walk with Christ. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 8. And as I read this, I want to see what I want you to notice what the believer does in response to what God does for them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what God did. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's also what God does. He protects the believer. But this is the response of the believer. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The response of the believer to what God has given to him is perseverance, it's joy, it's obedience, it's faith that God will indeed persevere them and preserve them to the end. The believer is also wary of themselves. They're very suspect of themselves, knowing that they're in a mixed condition, knowing that their flesh will lie to them. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The believer is one who understands that his heart will deceive him. He will lie to himself. So, those are the things that I want to leave with you today. The key descriptions is that he's in a mixed condition. He's not able to sin. He's able to please God. And there is a fight within him for holiness and righteousness. He's enslaved to God. That there is residual sin in his life. But he is able to shepherd his heart away from sin. And towards holiness of life. And he's no longer under God's wrath and judgment. And next time what we'll do is we'll spend time looking at the transition between the regenerate man and the heavenly man. We'll take a look at what death does to accomplish that. And we'll take a look at the heavenly man himself. Okay? So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the men who are here today. I thank you so much for the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you that salvation is your work. It is work that you do to the unbeliever, that you rescue. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who brings about salvation in the lost. 
I thank you that you impart your spirit and give new life to the believer so that they have the ability to walk in newness of life. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us understanding of that. Lord, that in our mixed condition, you've given us the ability to be obedient to you. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be men who are very suspect of the desires that are in us and are very trusting of your word and the goodness and the rightness of your word. Thank you again for the opportunity we have to be together this morning. Thank you for your goodness and kindness in giving us this time together. I pray for my friends here, Lord, that you would grant them your grace as they go throughout this day, that they would live in a way that's pleasing to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.